Uh, hello and welcome to Two Peds in a Pod, the Pediatric Medical Education Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Ian Lewins, and uh, I'm really pleased to uh, have today's guest on. And it's somebody we've wanted to get on for quite some time. We've never managed to match up our diaries. And uh, that's Dr. Ian Sinner, who is a respiratory pediatrician based in Alder Hay. Good evening, Ian. How are you? I'm really well, Ian. Thank you very much. Uh, how are you? Uh, good, thanks. Yes. Um, and we, we've talked before about getting you on the, the podcast to talk a bit about uh, poverty and asthma and vaping and smoke pollution. Um, but we're going to talk about none of those things today um, because we're going to talk a bit about food poverty. Um, so l- let me ask you this then. What's a respiratory paediatrician doing talking about food poverty? And, and what, what do you actually mean by food poverty? Uh, it's a it's a it's a good question as to why I'm getting involved. I ask I ask myself the same thing. Uh, it's it's quite a draining subject at the moment. You'll you, you'll have seen it all over the news. Uh, I'm sure within the UK and across the world. So so from my perspective as a respiratory paediatrician, so I, I work in Alder Hay um, Children's Hospital in Liverpool, which is one of the most deprived uh, cities in the UK. It's a fabulous place to live, fabulous place to work, but there, there's huge pockets of very profound deprivation and and I've felt for some time that a lot of my job is actually dealing with stuff that is preventable and um, you, you know I, I think a lot of what we deal with in, in medicine in general is just the manifestations of poverty and um, uh, and when we look at the, the world that we lived in even before COVID we, we were living in a very unequal world when it became when we looked at health so the Marmot Review from from this year and, and from years gone by showed us that there were huge inequalities in life expectancy huge inequalities in in health and for me it's very obvious that those inequalities can be tracked back to childhood and so say for example if we look at where I live in Liverpool uh, the, the the difference in life expectancy is is around 15 years between different wards. Uh, one of my uh, public health colleagues, David Taylor Robinson, explains that 15 minutes on the train from the outskirts to the centre of Liverpool takes 15 years off your life expectancy. And we see similar, even even bigger uh, inequalities in, in other cities like Manchester and, and Glasgow. And when we look at those inequalities, we can start to trace them back. So we see huge inequalities in outcomes for asthma, for bronchiolitis, um, for even just generally infant mortality. We see that the infants in the poorest quintile of the country are twice as likely to die as infants in, 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 the, in the most affluent quintile. And, and when we think about respiratory in general, you know, I became a respiratory paediatrician because I love the, the lungs. I think they're a fascinating and an amazingly delicate organ and you know over the course of this uh, podcast you know if we think about what our lungs are doing in the background it's phenomenal it's it's so intricate that over the course of this podcast we will be breathing in several liters of air and when we open out our alveoli it would cover center court at Wimbledon and, and the air would cross across that and it would go into a sequence of, uh, of blood vessels a network of blood vessels that would stretch all the way in one person from Liverpool right the way to Rome. That's how intricate the net is. That's what's keeping us alive. And that starts to begin uh, to develop and mature from four weeks post-conceptual age. So we've got our childhood. Your lungs grow and develop through your childhood. By the time you hit adulthood, that's what you that, that's what you enter 
adulthood with. And then, you know, as well as I do, Ian, nothing works as well in us as it did 20 years ago. You know, it's, it's all downhill from your early 20s. And so how you enter adulthood will determine how you are for the rest of your life. And even how you enter primary school will de- determine how you are for the rest of your life. And it's so obvious that food and nutrition is, an, we've known this since the beginning of humankind, that food and nutrition is really important for, for, for child health. And so for me, when we look at the adults who are getting admitted to hospital with COPD or, or, you know, or whatever respiratory illness or whatever heart disease, what the adult guys are really treating is the manifestations of what went wrong 50, 60, 70 years before. So that's why we need to get it right. I think 75% of what I see is just the manifestations of children in Liverpool and the Northwest who live in poverty. And I think the same around the uh, around the country. A lot of what we see is just driven by this. And alongside that, you know, you and I and, and, and all paediatricians go into paediatrics because what we really want is for children to live their best life. You, you know, you go and work really hard at Derby. You work harder than I do, I'm pretty sure. But what we what we do, what we do when we go to work is that we want to give children, you know, the opportunities to achieve great things in their life and, and live a happy uh, a happy life and it's so frustrating and so morally wrong for children to be to to, to be uh, to to be held back by by things like access to food it's 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 a right for humans to have good food it's a right for children to have good food and so it it's it's very difficult for me to uh, and for many people to accept that this is the status quo something has to change uh, around that Sorry, you you also asked what food poverty is, and the answer is we don't really know. So when when we think about um, definitions of food poverty, they they can be a little bit difficult to to pin down. But the the one that I think is quite uh, useful is, is to think about the insufficient economic access to an adequate supply of food, both in terms of quantity and quality. Um, and other people have added things to this definition, which I think are important, like maintaining a nutritionally satisfactory and socially acceptable diet. And in the UN, they have a scale that goes from mild to severe food insecurity. So mild would be worrying about whether you'll have food and severe is experiencing hunger or not having food because you've run out of food. And that's probably a good way to think about it. It's about children or their families not having enough food to, um, uh, to, to, to have a nutritious and at least satisfactory diet. So from, you know, from, from your perspective, this is, these are all uh, tied together. And it, it, I guess it, it beggars belief that in one of the richest countries in the world that we, we see this and, and that, that statistic that you've given us of that 15 years, 15 years difference in life expectancy is pretty horrifying um and i guess many people might look at that and go well, what will what can i what can i possibly do about that as, as, a, as a pediatrician and is it my job as a pediatrician to do something about this yeah it's um it's difficult isn't it you know we're all um we're, we're all busy we're all working seeing what comes through the door but it's at some point things have to have to change you you're right it's galling it's it's so 
difficult to to comprehend that there is still as you say in this rich country uh, such a such a problem here and and even if we go wider you know when we think about food poverty across the world what what, what we're really reflecting here is is um is a huge discrepancy and and a huge um differential in in, in wealth so the most of the wealth across the world is held by the minority of, of people in the world um and it very rarely trickles right through to um to, to the people at the other end of the spectrum um what what really needs to happen if if we look at the reasons why people have food poverty and experience food poverty <laughs> no this isn't the question you asked me but if we look at why they have food poverty in the first place we start to see what we need to do about it. And the Trussell Trust, which many people will have heard of, is, is an amazing network of, of food banks around the country. Uh, and uh, there are other food banks that have, uh, that, that have come up, and there's some, the ones that I've probably been working closest with are, are, are a network of um, football fans who've set up some food banks, which I think is a lovely thing to have done. Uh, and they're really, they're really supporting people um, not just in terms of, of of ensuring that they've got enough food and supplies, but in maintaining people's dignity as, as as well. It's a really important thing to remember. And when we when we look at the Trussell Trust, um, uh, you know, just to put in, into into scale, by by the even at the beginning of COVID, when I was doing lectures on food poverty at the start of the COVID pandemic, there were more food banks in the UK than there were McDonald's. Uh, and now it's you know way, way more than that, and and these shouldn't need to be there. And the reason that they have to be there, when when the Trussell Trust have done work about why people use their services, of which millions of people do, and which has you know more than doubled over the COVID uh, pandemic and the social restrictions. When we look at why people need to use them, the commonest reason is because they just don't have enough money to afford. Uh, the food and other problems relate to availability or delays in benefits, and and that I think is 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 an area of of importance that you know we need to think about poverty in general. Food poverty is very intrinsically tied, as you can imagine, to poverty in general. So, not having enough income is the first problem. Um, quite early on in the COVID pandemic. Um, there was some work to look at uh, how hard families were hit in the UK and in Norway. And families in the UK were much, much more likely to be struggling during the COVID pandemic. And the key reasons for that are that they were getting less wages. There was a, you know, four or five times as many people in the UK are working in the gig, gig economy and are on low hours, low wages uh, contracts. Uh, and it comes down to savings and benefits. And when we think about what this pandemic has shown, is it's shown that it just doesn't take much to push families in the UK over the edge. So what that means for us as paediatricians is that the way that we end food poverty is that we should be fighting and lobbying for uh, upscale, upstream interventions to, to, to end poverty in children in the UK. We need to be pushing for children in the UK to not be living in in deprivation and there's been you, you know there's been a huge um uh, a huge push recently which many people may have seen on uh, on social media and i would really draw their attention to this um to try and get the right the human right to food 
to be entrenched and ingrained in UK law. And what we mean by that is that if it's enshrined in the, in, in, in the law, then there is accountability at the highest levels if there are systemic reasons and systematic reasons why children and people don't have food. And, and I think paediatricians have a really important voice to play in that. So we should be pushing for upstream levels in interventions and we should be bringing a health element to this. We should be talking about the fact that whichever clinic you look at, diabetes clinic, Crohn's disease clinic, cardiac clinic, CF clinic, the thing that keeps children alive, the, the only certainty in life is that if you don't eat, you, you die. And, and, and we, you know, we rely so heavily on our dietitians to, to ensure good nutrition. We should be pushing the poor nutrition in, in childhood will just lead to endless problems throughout people's lives. Um, there are probably things that we can and should be doing on the shop floor, but I'm not quite sure what those are. And a lot of these can start out as being well-meaning, but end up being counterproductive. So last, about 15 months ago, we were keen to set up a system whereby we start um, right, you know, for everybody who comes through the, the ED, through, through A&E, uh, and certainly for children who are admitted to, war, to the ward, that we should be asking and recording about lots of different aspects of life associated with poverty. So asking about um, fuel poverty, asking about housing quality, asking about food poverty, asking about, you know, domestic violence, asking about, you know, access to school, all these kinds of things. Um, and I thought this is a great idea. You know, we'll just ask. It'll become part and parcel of how we deliver care in Alder Hay. And I asked some parents about this and I thought they'd say, yeah, that's great. They, they hated it. They said they don't want to be asked at triage. They don't want to be asked in the ED. They, they saw the value, I guess, to some degree about asking if they were admitted to hospital as part of the medical consultation. Um, but it was around the time that we, because, again, I spoke to some other people, including the Child Poverty Action Group, who I've done a bit of stuff with. And, and I said to them, you know, this could be really good. And they said, what would you do with these families? And I said, you know, we'd probably signpost them. And they said that actually, you know, we think signposting people to things works. It doesn't. It works for some people, but the people that you really need to help the most, it, it, it doesn't really help. So I thought, OK, well, I'm not quite sure where that leaves us. Um, so I think there's definitely something we can do. And actually what I would really want to see in hospitals. And, you know, we've been thinking about this in in our hospital and I'm sure others are thinking about similar things. But if you go to any modern hospital, you know, we've got. Marks and Spencers and Costas and, you know, that's no offence to Marks and Spencers or Costas, but, you know, we've got shops where it's very difficult to afford to buy things. I, you know, we've made space for them. Why don't we make space for um, citizens advice bureaus and, um, you know, uh, financial advisors for, you know, for people at the opposite end of the spectrum to, to a lot of your listeners, you know, people that can help uh, from that point of view. Um you know, we don't have smoking cessation inbuilt and ingrained in our paediatric clinics, and we know that that would be something that would make a huge difference. So I think what paediatricians could really do is push for their hospitals to set up services to help people in, you know, from a poverty point of view um, without necessarily focusing on the food poverty point of view. Um, I guess the third thing that's really interesting to me at the moment is the idea of community-led resources like shared allotments. We've got some land around our hospital that 
uh, a lot of people are interested in building an allotment and when kids are waiting to see me in my always you know inevitably overrunning clinic instead of waiting there eating stuff that they bought from marks and spencers maybe they could do a little bit of work in the allotment and then take home a box of vegetables or something you know something like that something where it's not necessarily charity as such and it's not signposting it's it's helping people have access to resources that they need but i but to be honest i don't know the answer and if i could pick one of those things it would be to have it ingrained and enshrined in the law alongside a meaningful strategy that could lead to some change yeah and as you say you know that the pandemic has brought sharply into focus the issue of of food poverty particularly in children um for whom you know that the school meal that they get may be the only sort of decent nutritious meal that, that they get each day um why, it's a very sad indictment but why do you think it's taken a footballer to to highlight this issue and 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 make change and could we and should we have been doing more um, yes, I, th- I think we could and, and should uh, have been doing more and we could and should uh, do more. And that, again, is, you know, from from individuals in paediatrics, but also from our college. You know, we've got a voice as paediatricians. People will listen to us if, if we sell the, the, the right narrative. And, and we, you know, we shouldn't have to sell a narrative. It should be really obvious. I mean, Marcus Rashford has achieved more than... than, than than, than many of us certainly achieved more than I will achieve in, in, in my career. He's achieved a lot. And I think, uh, you, you know, for those of you who haven't seen this, and I can't imagine who that would be, but Marcus Rashford, Man United footballer, good footballer at that as well. I mean, would you even concede that, Ian, as a, as a Liverpool fan? <laughs> oh, it, it pains me. It, it pains. You, you know, after Marcus Rashford started this work and, and started gaining some traction. I had to say to our guys in Liverpool, you, you know, a Man United footballer is making sure that the children of Liverpool are fed today. This isn't good enough. You know, we need to be louder and we need to be more vocal and we need to have a strong message of what it is that we're trying to achieve. And um, and in terms of, um, of, of things like the free school meals, I mean, they've got a long history. Free school meals um, go back to the mid 19th century in Manchester and then and, and I've been kind of reading through the, the the history of free school meals as you know as part of a paper that I'm putting together for for archives with you and, and with others and um what strikes me about the history of free school meals is that it just turns into a political debate between basically Labour and the and, and the um, Conservative government. Whoever's in power at the time will always say, "Well, we did this and you did that." And you know, we a lot. One of the things I remember is you, you know changes to, um, to to school meals when I was at school in in the, in the 80s, and and that still keeps coming up now about well. Thatcher's government did this and people who were advocates for Margaret Thatcher will say well you go back to Labour in the 70s and they did that and they say well you go back to the 60s and you did that and we just need to get past that you know we've had a century and a half where we've not quite got it right for various reasons um, and we, we need to just get past that neither um, major neither of the major political parties has has covered themselves in glory when it comes to food uh, insecurity, food poverty in children, and and and, and we need to do um, better. Um, as to why Marcus Rashford had such an impact, I don't think it's because he's a footballer. I, I really don't. I think it's because the story that he told 
was a very human story. This isn't him coming at it from an academic background. This isn't him coming at it from a, you know, from a moral standpoint background. This is him saying, look, you know, I'm lucky to be in the position that I'm in. And the other thing about his story that kind of, you know, it's something that um, that, that I think is, is a perfect example of why we need to change the narratives about child poverty is that there's very the, the tendency when people talk about children living in deprivation is to say their parents should go and get a job. But the statistics, the data tell us something completely different, which is that 70 percent of children who live in poverty have at least one working parent doing at least one job. And that was a similar thing with Marcus Rashford's mum, you know, someone working so hard to get food on the table and support her son through, you know, through through a very physical process of, of becoming a footballer, I think really struck home with people. People could see that this isn't about figures and numbers and, you know, meaningless laws that are written into 10,000 page law documents. This is about people and, and about people's lives and specifically about a young child's life. We, you know, we saw what can happen um, if if children are supported to do well. And, 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 you know, Marcus Rashford is now one of the best footballers in the world. But how many children in, in, in your patch in Derby and in our patch in Liverpool and in Middlesbrough, where I grew up, how many thousands of children are not fulfilling their potential because they haven't got enough food? Um, and, and, you know, we, we hear a lot about things like levelling up and Northern Powerhouse. The, team, the people that I've been working with uh, around food poverty, you know, for us, the Northern Powerhouse is not about fast trains. It's not about investing in business. It's about investing in children. They're the powerhouse of the North. They're the potential that that, that we have to, to, to do well and, and exceed anything that we've achieved so far. And yet they're going to bed hungry tonight and they'll go to school hungry tomorrow, and we'll expect them to stay awake and do their best. And I think as paediatricians, we need to be pushing that the impact of poor nutrition on childhood is, is about health now and about health in the future, but also about education now and education in the future. Nothing will get better until we sort out these wider determinants of health. So, and, and you, we can see with, with the work from, from Marcus Rashford and people like uh, Jack Monroe, uh, and also, you know, the, the college actually on social media has recently been highlighting problems and about the school meal vouchers. Um, so it does show that actually social media and Twitter and people making a noise can make very tangible differences in, in relatively short periods of time. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I couldn't agree with that more. And um, and I think the college, certainly over the last few years, I've seen a, a slight difference in 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 output from the college on this, which is which, which is good. I mean, at my first ever medical conference that I went to was as a medical student, and um, I was doing a like a you know the sort of final year type projects with mm. um, with a community paediatrician in Newcastle called Tony Waterston, an absolutely great guy. And um, he sent me down to London, to, to the college, in fact, for a, um, uh, for a conference on poverty and child health. And this was, what, 2001, showing my age. Um, but uh, it was around the time that people were starting to uh, open up Sure Start centres around the country. And I was like, this is amazing, you know, Sure Start centres. This sounds 
you, you know, this sounds fantastic. And I remember sitting next to, um, to in fact, Professor Barker, who I hadn't, who had done all this work about the Barker hypothesis, showing that however you are when you're born just determines how you are for the rest of your life. And, you know, I was completely taken by, by, by all of this. And I remember thinking uh, more recently with the austerity cuts that happened after the last recession, that um, as Shaw Start centres were closing, the, the paediatric hospitals and paediatric services were surprisingly quiet about this. You know, we, we should have been louder then. And I don't think at that time we fully understood how the world was going to change with social media over the next 10 years. So I think it's great to see the college and other people active on, on social media about this. And I think they've done it in a really lovely way. They've got a lot of traction and, and you know, a lot of emphasis be, be, or a lot of um, uh, interest and, and uh, backing for, for these really important topics. And you're exactly right. You know, we should be pushing our messages on, on social media. A lot of bad things can happen on social media, but a lot of good can happen from there too. Um, and it, it, from, from a purely moral point of view, this obviously seems the right thing to do. Um, from a purely academic point of view, um, can we show that, that food poverty, you know, directly correlates with poorer outcomes academically and from a health perspective? And you yeah. sort of mentioned, you know, the difference in, in life expectancy, um, but, but is there anything that can link food, po food poverty, food po poverty specifically? So, yeah, no, really, uh, it, it's an interesting thing to think about. And, and we've spent a lot of time trying to find some really good evidence on this. And the evidence out there directly relating food poverty with poor health outcomes is actually pretty sparse. Um, and we need to do more on it. And, we, you know, we are starting to write grants in this area and stuff. We, we, we did a systematic review about food poverty and asthma. And there were six studies, some of them large and good, some of them fairly poor, and um, looking at uh, looking at that and, and we can see that you know growing up in food poverty increases or is associated with an increased risk of developing asthma and, and having asthma attacks and um, what becomes more difficult for any kind of observational research like that whether it be about food poverty indoor air quality air pollution you know whatever it might be is the confounding variables in that um in that observational research in other words you might think it's the food poverty but it might be something else so the, the research itself is is a little tricky to do and also we've got no really good research ready um definition i think for what food poverty is so food poverty to one person is not necessarily food poverty to another and people accessing food banks are you know a particular group of people with food poverty but that might not reflect everybody for example we know that um uh, Asian people, for example, tend not to use food banks, but may have even more profound poverty. So it, it, it's difficult to to do the studies. I think for me, there are three areas of, of huge um, uh, of huge interest in terms of finding research that, or, or doing research, or, or, or examining the mechanistic impact of food poverty. The first is there's a paradoxical link between food poverty and obesity. So in the UK, we tend not to find people coming in completely, you know, malnutrition. It does happen. I mean, I've seen teenagers who I were convinced had cancer, and I had one earlier this year, was convinced had 
COVID. I was like, you must have COVID. How can you possibly be this sick on ITU and have a billion negative COVID tests? And it turns out that they just hadn't been fed and, and hadn't eaten. So we do see, we do see malnutrition, but what we also see is obesity. And when we look at um, the National uh, Child Measurement Programme, where basically kids around the country get measured and, and weighed in schools, I, I don't remember doing this. Like, I, don't, I don't know whether this happened after we were at school. But I'm pretty sure no one weighed and measured me. I think they would have had a shot. But um, when when we look at the National Child Measurement Programme, it, it backs what we've all been saying. You know, we all know, everybody in the country knows that there is an increasing problem with obesity in children. But the new data suggests that actually that problem is almost exclusively confined at you know population level, almost exclusively seen in the poorest fifth of the country and largely black and Asian children when compared with, with with white children. So that's obviously not to say that white children don't become obese or that you know rich children don't become obese. That's absolutely not true. But when you look at the at the graphs, the, the rise is driven by uh, socioeconomic inequality. And we start to see that rise even earlier uh, than, than secondary school. You know, we're seeing it in children going to reception over the last 10 years. That rise is only get things are only getting worse for the poorest children. So I think thinking about the, and, and you know, there's plenty of research showing the problems of, of, of poor nutrition and obesity on um, on, on child health and, and, and adult health. Um, I think the second area of interest should be around just poverty in general. And the third thing um, should be around uh, a particular field of science called epigenetics. And this is where, in essence, the DNA that you're born with is structurally the same you know, right the way through, but there are changes that happen to it. And what we know from epigenetic work is that living in poverty, just being poor uh, as a child, changes your DNA. It changes the fundamental chemicals that make up who you are, the fundamental thread that, that, that holds you together. The thing that makes you who you are is, is affected by poverty. Up to about 10% of your DNA is changed by epigenetics associated with poverty. And for me, when I think about the impact of food and good nutrition, I, I'm starting to think on that sort of level, the intracellular level. And I think you know, your body just needs energy and, and good nutrition, vitamins and minerals and what have you to function, to just function day to day, you know, in second to second, you need that nutrition. But also good nutrition is showing itself to be protective against other adverse factors. So if we look at the traction that air pollution has had over the last 10 years, for me, that's really important. You know, I think air, obviously air pollution is, is crucially important, but it's particularly important for people who are living in deprivation. Um, and a lot of work suggests in particular, for example, you know, black people in, in London are more affected in, in some parts than, than white people. And, and, you know, we need to be thinking about all these social parts of, uh, of, of improving uh, air pollution. But when we look at air pollution, one of the things that can be protective against the pro-inflammatory and damaging effects of air pollution is good nutrition, is good antioxidant fruits that can help mop up all the free radicals that happen when you breathe in uh, the you know the diesel fumes that can help you um you know live a, live a healthy life because your arteries are growing better all of these things we know are tied to food and trying to make the step to tie them with food poverty may be difficult and i've kind of just started accepting that it's all part of a big slightly nebulous definition mm. difficult to measure um Ian, I, I could talk to you all day about this because the, the the 
passion that you have for this is it clearly shines through. Um, but we're running out of time, so I just wanted to to finish up with you mentioned that you're you're sort of writing something for for archives because I, I guess for people who would listen to this and think actually I'd like to get involved but I don't know where to start what is it that you're, you're sort of putting together for archives so for archives we're writing a review about food insecurity and the health of children in the UK um, and the reason it's taking so long as I've mentioned to you before is that uh, every time I think I've finished it something else happens in parliament that, that, that adds to this you know for example we've to, you know thinking about Brexit and the impact that that might have and thinking about free school meals and thinking. So uh, so, so we're trying to tie together a reasonably coherent thing. And, and, and there's, there's a few of us on the paper. So I'm hoping that someone who's better at this stuff than me might be able to, to make it tell a coherent story. But we're going to talk about the etiology of food poverty, which we've discussed already, which is you know largely about poverty. Um, and we're going to talk about the affordability of healthy food. So there's a very false narrative that healthy food is uh, as cheap as unhealthy food is just not true you know the harvard school of public health have found otherwise so we're going to talk about why food is 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 prohibitively expensive and then we're going to talk about why this might have uh, an impact on on child health uh, and finally i'm going to throw in some stuff around the national food strategy and how the thing that would really make a difference is upstream accountability and upstream interventions to make sure that people have money uh, to, to, to afford food and that that food is available and free uh, free and, and cheap and that that, uh, that that the families have enough education but also enough um, resource to, to prepare the food in a palatable way um, and just to throw in here there's a there's someone on Twitter who has set up a uh, thing a scheme whereby he gives away um, uh, slow cookers which are a really economical way of making but even I can use a slow cooker and you, you know the idea that we can start to think about upstream interventions to 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 enable that is better than uh, you know I mean we we are relying and people are relying on food banks right now those guys are absolute heroes but we want to see them enjoying their Saturday afternoons watching football six years from now you know we want this to be sorted so that we don't need to rely on these sticking plasters to hold people's families together um, so that's basically where it's going, and I'll talk about free school meals in there, um, and hopefully this will come out soon. Uh, we need a network. Anyone who's interested in this sort of stuff, just drop me a line. You know, if there are any junior doctors who might be interested in doing some um, some research in this area, we've got uh, a list of people that are already keen that we're working up some grants with. If other people want to just bounce some ideas or set up some educational stuff, more than happy to link. I think we need we need a really strong cohesive voice here so um which i'm very grateful for your uh, your podcast uh, today as well Ian. so so yeah drop me a line drop. and how would uh, people get hold of you what's the best way to, to sort of get hold so, of you so <laughs> you you control me on uh on twitter um at uh, wheezy like sunday morning which was a name that you chose Ian. i think i still owe you a pint choosing that yeah <laughs> um or they can drop me an email at uh, ian sinis that's i-a-n-s-i-n-h-a at liv.ac.uk just drop me an email if i don't answer it's not because i'm ignoring you it's because i'm really bad at doing emails but um yeah do, do do get in touch brilliant thank you so much ian i think that will have inspired a lot of people for such a fundamental and important project so thank you so much for your time much appreciated